my question for you this morning is why do we do any of it? Why are you here? Why, why, do we, why do we give these things? Why do we come to different prayer nights? Why do we come together and discuss issues of doctrine? Why? Why are you here? I mean, obviously, it's the gospel. At least, I hope that's the obvious answer, right? It's, it's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus has compelled you to be here in some form or fashion today, right? This message that there is this Savior who gave his life on a cross and triumphed over the grave three days later is a message that has changed the course of humanity. And that's why we respond. That's why we're here. We're here because of that message. But I want to remind you that we're here not just because Jesus saves, right? As, as remarkable as that is, we're also here because through the gospel, purpose and meaning and significance is infused into your life. You have a cause, you have a reason, you have a task, you have a commission to be ambassadors of this gospel. That's why we do these things. That's why we gather together as a community of faith, so that we can respond to this message and live an uncommon life, to be able to, to reveal and be an ambassador for this kingdom. That's why we've gathered here today. And my hope is that as we prepare to hear his word once again, we can be stirred to the ways in which he's called us, that once again we can encounter this uncommon power that continues to reveal itself in our midst, to marvel at this uncommon, this holy God so that we can better live the uncommon life he calls us to live. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. And we ask God that you would send your spirit to awaken us and stir us with a greater understanding of what it is that you've done for us through Jesus, God, that you would help us break through the mundane, the routine, the habit, and see the urgency and the meaning and the purpose with which we are called to live this life. Give us courage, give us boldness, and allow your word to speak to us today in a way that has never happened before, that it would transcend our understanding and compel us to live for your glory. We love you, Father, and pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Now, we've been working through this series that's focused on this subject of power, really specifically the power of God. And over the last couple of weeks, we've established a few things, that there is a two different expressions of this power. When left in the hands of mankind, we can see that it is easily corrupted. And, and it is a corruptible expression of violence, of oppression, of greed, of self-preservation, all these different ways that we can see how this power can be abused. But we talked last week about how power is actually a gift, right? It's what God initially intended. And there is a, a way that power can be used that leads to creation, that leads to flourishing, right? And that's the sort of power that, that God initially intended. So initially we looked at Pharaoh as the example of the corruptible power and all the things that we need to avoid and, and the pitfalls that can so easily entangle us but we are also reminded that, once again, God's power cannot and will not be stopped, right? It moves at just the right pace in just the right way, waiting to reveal itself at just the right time. And then last week, we saw that this flourishing power, this gift of power that allows us to go and speak to the vulnerable, that allows us to go and help the oppressed, is best resembled and modeled for us through God. And one of the most amazing things that we see, the, the beginning of that flourishing power is this incredible fact that God hears, right? He hears you, right? Your prayers have meaning. They have 
value. And because he hears, so should we. We need to listen to the cries of the vulnerable. We need to listen to the cries of those who are around us that are hurting and so that we can also invite them into this flourishing power that only comes through the gospel. These are some of the things that we've discussed so far. And we've done it through the lens of Moses' life. And we continue this story and we get to one of the more familiar pieces of the Old Testament, one story that we've probably heard numerous times, and we're going to break it down into different sections over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to read the first six verses of chapter three today and allow us to see how power is better understood through God's holiness. So follow along with me, chapter three, starting in verse one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, several things about this text that I want us to consider this morning. And I want us to begin with the statement that God appeared to Moses, right? We have this Common setting, here's Moses guiding the flock of his father-in-law. He's at Mount Horeb, or also Mount Sinai, as it's also known as. And here we see this divine encounter between God and Moses. And we're introduced to this encounter with this word that Lord appeared. And in the root of that word, its it's verb, is ultimately means to see. But the way it's translated in this particular text shows us that it's not just that Moses saw, but that the Lord chose to reveal himself. So part of what I want to make sure we understand is that this is not observation, this is revelation. And there's a big difference. It's not as if God was already hanging out, allowing this bush to burn in this miraculous way, and then all of a sudden Moses just stumbled upon it, right? God is interjecting himself into Moses' story and has chosen at this particular time to reveal himself to him. We have a God of revelation, and that's incredibly significant. And I don't know that we always process the significance the way that we should and what that really conveys to us and and the meaning behind the fact that God is a God who reveals himself. And so I was trying to think of of a way to kind of bring that into greater connection and understanding. And I thought about all these different programs that my children have at their school. There's all these occasions where they have to go and sing a song or do a play or there's a talent show. And so Uh, As a result, we're invited to these programs. They're always in the school cafeteria. And when you walk into the school cafeteria, you you see it's like a paparazzi festival of parents and grandparents. And they've all got their phones, and they're ready to video, and they're all just, just there anxious to see their child. And so the program typically begins, and and you can see that at different phases, more parents are more interested in parts of the show than in other parts of the show. Why? Because they're waiting for their particular child. And so when it gets to that moment where their child is there, typically, if you look out into the sea of paparazzi, these parents and grandparents, what do you see them do? They try to get their child's attention, right? In some form or fashion, they either stand up or they smile or the really ambitious ones will just wave like crazy, be like, I'm right here, you know? And what's really fun is to watch the different reactions of children through the course of their ages. Because when they're young, 
and you go to these shows and these programs when they're in preschool, they completely forget they're in a program and they match the enthusiasm of their parent. They're just like, hey, you know, and they're waving from the stage. As they get older, the wave back gets a little bit more discreet and eventually they just pretend like they don't see you at all. And so you see different reactions from children, but parents, there's always this enthusiasm. Why is that? A parent doesn't go to watch their child and try to hide themselves, right? They're not sitting out there going, well, I don't want them to know that I'm here. They're not trying to conceal. They, they go out of their way to say, I'm here. I'm here for you, right? That, that's what we see with the God of Revelation, right? That he goes out of his way to convey to his children, I am here. Now, the challenge is that a lot of times we question if he's revealed himself. And we ask these basic questions. Well, I can't see him and I can't hear him. So how do I know he's there? And we need to be reminded of the many different ways that God reveals himself. Think of a few that we see mentioned in scripture. Number one, he reveals himself through creation. Right, Romans 1 says it over and over again, right? That, that God's eternal nature, his divine qualities have been revealed through creation so that we are without excuse. So when we go and we marvel at a moonlit sky or we're overwhelmed by the power of a mountain range or the depth of a canyon or when we just study the intricacy of human life, that is God revealing himself, revealing his word, revealing his eternal nature and his divine qualities. Think about the word. Think about the scriptures. Right? How many times have you found yourself going, I just wish God would give me an answer. I wish he would just speak to me. I wish I just knew exactly what he wanted me to do with my life. And there are times where we need to stop and just realize he has and he cares so deeply that you know what he said, he put it down in writing and preserved it for thousands of years. He's revealed himself through his holy word. Think about Jesus, right? That in Jesus, we have the, the amazing moment of the incarnation where, where God takes on flesh and dwells among us, right? It is the fullness of the deity in bodily form, according to Paul in Colossians. This is the exact representation of God's being. He is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. So God has gone above and beyond to reveal himself to assure us that we know that he is there, that he cares for us. But there's one other in this list of revelations that I wanna mention this morning that pertains to this passage, miracles. God also reveals himself through the miraculous. And that's often the most difficult for us to grasp and the most difficult for us to truly understand, but it's a really important one because it is a way that God chooses to reveal himself. He chooses himself through miracles. And that's exactly what we have here in this passage, a miracle. Now, how would you define miracle? How do you understand it? Or what, what parameters do you kind of put in place to qualify something as a miracle? I was thinking through this and decided we could just turn to a very basic and simple definition. Dictionary.com comes in handy. Here's how it's defined. An effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to be a supernatural cause. Right, and so essentially something extraordinary happens, some event, some occurrence, and it surpasses our knowledge, surpasses our understanding of, of our power, the powers of the natural world, and it leads us to have to ascribe it to something that is supernatural, right? So take case in point, what we've just read this morning, okay? A bush on fire, not that remarkable, okay? That's 
That's explainable. That can be comprehended. A bush on fire that doesn't burn up. Well, that's different. That, that surpasses my knowledge. That surpasses my understanding. That surpasses the, the rules of nature. How is this possible? So Moses says, I'm gonna go see about this strange sight, right? This, this great sight, this, this awesome sight, something I don't understand. It's a miracle. So what we see is that a miracle is a, some, some sort of manifestation of power that challenges our concept of power. And so as a result, there are different reactions to miracles on a variety uh, of spectrum, right? There, there are all these different ways to interpret and respond to miracle. Uh, Andy Crouch, in this book that I've been referring to, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, has a great description of how we can often react in different ways to miracles. Here's what he says. Into the unfolding story of creation from time to time burst miracles, and nothing upends our assumptions about power as much as miracles. Miracles, by definition, do not work the way the world works. Miracles happen outside the framework of expected power, serving as a sign that we do not know what is really going on. They are a warning as much as a gift, and fully capable of producing just as many unhappy, unsettled bystanders as grateful beneficiaries. Miracles seem to happen in odd and unpredictable ways that leave onlookers in some combination of awe, disbelief, confusion, and even hostility. All right, so here's what he's trying to say. It's because this is a manifestation of power and it upends our understanding of power, it can create a variety of different reactions. Think, think about of a few well-known miracles that we see in the scriptures. Think about the parting of the Red Sea. For some, it's awe. For some, it's, it's wonder, it's joy. For the Israelites who were able to pass through on dry ground and find that safety, that's the response. But for the Egyptians, confusion, anger, hostility. Think about Jesus when he heals on the Sabbath. You go to Mark chapter three and there's this story of him healing a man with the shriveled hands, right? Whenever Jesus performs this miracle, it leads to restoration, a restoring of power to this man who was once minimized by this ailment. And so for him, in that restoration, there's joy, there's celebration. For others, they marvel at this. But for the Pharisees, the teachers of the law in that moment, what did they do? According to Mark chapter three, they left and they went and began to conspire how to kill Jesus. Hostility, anger. Think about the resurrection, right? Here's this, this news, this incredible news. He is not here, he is risen. And you have that declaration, and for many, this is the good news that elicits hope, it elicits passion, it elicits devotion, but for others, resistance and hostility. For those that were guilty of crucifying Jesus, for those that saw him as a threat, they're the ones that are gonna respond negatively and in that hostile way. And so you can see a lot of different reactions, why? In every scenario, it was those that had a corruptible sense of power and a sense of their power being threatened that responded with hostility, right? Because that's what we learned in week one. Power doesn't want to be threatened. And when it is, it often responds with that form of hostility. But when Jesus moves and when God moves, it's often in the level of restoration. And so you're going to see a variety of different responses to the miraculous. And so part of what we need to do is evaluate, well, what is my response to the miraculous? How do we respond 
to God moving and upsetting our construct of power. And there are several things about the miraculous that I want to make sure that we're aware of this morning. And the first is this. When we think about the miraculous, I want us to make sure that we feel confident to pray for miracles, that we absolutely should pray for them. We should absolutely expect them and know them and desire them because that is who our God is. This is a way that he has chosen to reveal himself and to reveal his power. It is an uncommon power. It is unlike anything else that we have in the course of humanity. And so we should absolutely desire it and crave it and pray for it. Now, you, you're sick. You find somebody else that's hurting, that's ailing. You, you want to see a movement. You want to see uh, oppression eradicated. Then pray for a miracle. Absolutely. That's who our God is. We should never be timid and sensitive in that arena. But here's the second thing we need to keep in mind when we think about the miraculous. When we pray for it, we need to pray for it with wisdom and maturity. All right, here's the reality. God has a plan that's greater than ours. And as much as we may need or want the miraculous, God's plan does not revolve around our needs and wants, no matter how much we may need it and want it. His plan is greater than our own. And, and so he moves according to his purposes. And we need to trust that plan. We need to trust it and submit our desires and our wants to it. Probably the greatest example that demonstrates this sort of wisdom and this sort of maturity in the face of, of seeking God's power and seeking his miracles, to me, comes from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I've mentioned them as an example before. Let me do it again. Here they are. They're standing in front of ultimate power, King Nebuchadnezzar, who threatens to throw them into the fiery furnace, can take their life, right? They have no control in his presence. And so what do they say in the praise of that power? They need a miracle. And so they say, okay, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Our God is able to save and he will. I love that. There's the confidence. There's the prayer. There's the expectation and the miraculous. The trust and the belief in God's power being greater than the power of mankind. But then what do they say? But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. I love it. They understand he has a plan. They understand he has a purpose. And that may or may not result in their freedom. It may or may not result in their safety. And they're okay with that. And even if it doesn't, it's not going to change what they believe. And it's not going to change who they serve. It's wisdom and maturity as they seek the miraculous. The third thing that I want us to see with miracles is that a lot of times they are unseen. Right? When we start to question whether or not they even exist, which ironically, as I was researching this, uh, around 80% of Americans believe in the miraculous, right? So we don't have a hard time necessarily believing it, but I think a lot of times we have a hard time trusting that they're actually taking place because they're often unseen, right? Think about even just this example that we have with Moses, right? This is a small burning bush and a shepherd. That's it. Hey, this wasn't broadcast on the evening news, I mean, Moses goes home and probably reports this. I guarantee you there are some people going, man, the dude has lost it. That can't happen. Right? It wasn't observed by a ton of people. I mean, think about uh, Jesus' first miracle. That, uh, Andy Crouch does a great treatment of the first miracle that we see in the Gospel of John where Jesus turns water into wine. And I don't have enough time to go into all the details, but it's a, it's a great portion of this book. And, and part of his point is to listen very few people that were beneficiaries of that miracle at that wedding had any idea how it happened. 
Outside of Jesus and Jesus' mom, very few saw it and understood it. A lot of times, the miraculous escapes our notice. They're in quiet settings, intimate settings, so we need to, to be cautious before we assume it's not happening or that we haven't seen it or we haven't been beneficiaries of it. And the last thing I want us to remember when we think about the miraculous is to remember the ultimate miracle that has already taken place, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that declaration of the angel that says in the midst of the empty tomb, he is not here, he is not risen. The fact that we know that Jesus has triumphed over the grave is the greatest miracle the world has ever known. There is not a single situation that you can encounter in your life where that message of hope cannot bring comfort and cannot bring faith. You face sickness, you face illness, you face disease, you face depression, you face anything that you need, some sort of deliverance of, and you're asking God for victory, and you're asking God for hope, the answer is, I've given it to you. It's there, and it's assuredly there through Jesus Christ, and you can find your confidence in it through the cross and the empty tomb. And so, yes, we pray for it, but never to the oversight and the forgetting of the ultimate miracle that's already taken place through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God reveals himself through the miraculous. What we have here is an uncommon power. Now, the reason we have different responses to this sort of manifestation, this sort of revelation of God, is because miracles come with a message. One of the things I wanna make sure we don't lose sight of is that miracles are not there just for entertainment, right? It's, it's not as if God was up in heaven and was like, you know, I'm kinda of bored. I don't know, let's set that bush on fire, talk to Moses for a little bit, you know? Right? It, it, there's more to it than that. There's a message that is being conveyed. Every, every time there's some sort of revelation of God's presence and, and the miraculous nature of who he is, there's a message that is being conveyed. And so what is the message that we see here? Right, the first thing we see is that God calls to Moses from within the bush. Moses, Moses. The fact that he mentions his name twice suggests both the urgency and the importance of what's about to occur. Now, we don't have time to look at all of this message today. We're going to break it down in chunks over the next couple of weeks. But let's look at the first few things we see about the message that God is preparing to reveal to Moses. He says his name twice, and then Moses says, here I am. And then what is the first thing God says? It's a word of restriction. It's a word of instruction. Don't come closer. Take off your sandals. It's interesting, isn't it? The very first thing he says is something he has to do, and it's, and it's a limiting word of instruction. <clears throat> You've come far enough. Change what you have on your feet. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Why? Why is this what God is conveying in this moment? For you are standing on holy ground. The message that we're about to see revealed to Moses at its very core is a message of holiness. Now, what does that mean? You ever really stopped and considered and reflect upon this concept of holiness? It's a word we use all the time in Christianity. But honestly, when you stop and think about it, it's kind of hard to convey and, and even hard to grasp. What, what do we mean with the word holy? Like what comes to your mind when you hear it? If you're like me, the first thing I think of is the song, Holy, 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 which we sang at the beginning of our service today. 
great song, one of my favorites. And, and there's some wonderful messages within that song, but I don't know that it really defines holiness. Now we get an understanding of God's trinity, right? That the darkness can't hide him, right? All these different things, but I don't know if it fully describes his holiness, right? So I think of songs, I also think of phrases. There's one particular phrase that typically comes to my mind when, when you think about those people in your life that kind of carry that air of superiority and make you feel inferior, right? That phrase, holier than thou, right? You think about those people that kind of get on to you and make you feel like you're terrible for the way that you live and they're just perfect. They're the ones that get mad at you when you say the word shoot, you know? And, and you just kind of carry this sense of like, oh man, and what that's teaching us is that in some way we have this understanding that holiness is related to conduct or behavior, ethics, and there's truth to that, but it's insufficient, right? Holiness is so much more than just behavior, so much more than just conduct, but, but what is it exactly? I, so I, I was struggling with trying to, to convey this, and I thought, well, I don't know. I'll go to Google. Google always helps. Maybe there's a picture of holiness that I can share with the church, and so a lot of times I'll go to, to the search engine on Google, and I will choose images, and I'll just type in the word and see what we get. So I did that. Here's what I found. Typed in holy into Google. Here are the pictures that come with it. <clears throat> Sky and hands lifted high. So there you go. Does that make you feel better? Right? You get it now? My point is we don't have any real grasp on how to convey this. What is it? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean that God has just said to Moses, this is holy ground? Well, let me, let me try to do our best to use this text to at least venture into that. And it is somewhat difficult to convey. So the first thing that I want us to see is that holiness is exclusive to God. It is the, the central essence of his character. Okay, you think about different uh, references in Leviticus, both 19 and 22. In 19, God says, I am holy. So he self-describes himself as holy. It, it is his character, it's his nature. You think about Leviticus 22, where he is offering these different laws and these restrictions, and he says, according to my holy name. Now, think about that. In, in ancient Semitic civilization, right, ancient Jewish civilization, your name was connected to your identity. So when he says, my name is holy, he's saying, I am holy, just once more time, in a different way, right? So it is the essence of who God is. <clears throat> it's his character. It's his nature. It's the divine motivation in every capacity, right? Holiness is God. Now, if you look at the, the actual word, here's how it's defined. It means that which belongs to the realm of the sacred and completely distinct from the common and the profane. <laughs> so here's what I want us to try to see. There is nothing like God. Nothing. No, nothing in creation. Nothing you can point to on this earth that can be holy outside of the presence of God. There is nothing like him. It is distinctly his in every sort of capacity. And when we marvel at his nature and we begin to explore his character, what do we see? We see perfect goodness, which is why when you think about creation and you think about what we can observe on earth, it's referred to as common. It's referred to as profane because we're broken, because we're fallen, because there are mistakes. There is nothing like it. You, you hear this idea of perfect goodness, and what can you point to 
on this earth that even comes close to resembling that? Nothing. It is all exclusively him. He is holy. And so the more we understand him and his character and his nature, the more we understand holiness. And there are several clues that we find within this particular passage. I want to highlight a few of them. Let's start with holy grounds. God's presence invades the common and the profane, right? So his presence is the only thing that can make anything or anyone holy. So let me explain this to you. It's not as if God is sitting up there going, I need to appear to Moses. I can only do it over here because that, that spot at Mount Horeb by that bush, that's holy ground. So we need, to, we need to make sure he goes and leads those sheep over there. He could show up anywhere. Doesn't matter. Wherever he shows up, that area becomes holy. Holiness only exists within his presence. And anything he touches becomes holy. This is a misconception. But a lot of times, holiness can become dirty, that it can become filthy, that it needs to be purified. No, it's the other way around. Holiness cleanses the common. It cleanses the profane. Holiness invades the common. Right? It's got this power to it. Now, the other thing we see in this particular passage is that there's this manifestation of fire, right? There's this this flame-like appearance in this bush that's going to take place. Now, here's what's interesting about fire. More than 375 references to fire, uh, predominantly in the scriptures in the Old Testament, and the majority of them reveal or point to two different types of occurrences. When God reveals himself to humanity or when there's an act of worship through some form of sacrifice and burning, right? And so what we see continually is that when God reveals himself, fire is somehow part of it. You think about the fiery sword that protects the entrance to the Garden of Eden. You you think about the pillar of fire that's going to lead the Israelites as they go through the Exodus. You, You think about when the covenant was made with Abraham in Genesis 15, that that covenant was sealed with a flame that passes through the sacrifice. Over and over again, we see God revealing himself through fire. And in those instances, here's typically what you can identify. Judgment or salvation. Fire either means death or life. And so we see a sense of God's holiness, right? That when we encounter this holiness, it's going to lead to a greater sense of judgment or salvation, of death or new life. Right? When Egypt encounters this holy God, it leads to judgment. With Israel, it leads to new life. God's holiness demands a very definitive response. In this initial response from Moses, he hides his face out of fear. Why? Because he knows it's going to reveal his own brokenness. He knows it's going to result in some form of judgment. But through the course of the conversation, what does he find? He finds hope. He finds power. He finds deliverance. Right? So we see it through the manifestation of fire. A couple other things we see. We see that God's holiness in this particular moment is revealing a purpose. God's holiness has a purpose. What does he say to Moses? I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This becomes a refrain of God identifying himself, identifying his holiness to say, I know there's a covenant. I know I've made a plan. I am calling for myself a people who will know me. I am calling for myself a holy nation, and I have a purpose, and I'm going to make sure that it is fulfilled. Holiness achieves God's purpose. We also see that holiness is compassionate. 
right? How did chapter two end? The Israelites are crying out to God in their oppression. They're crying out to God for help, and then God hears and he's concerned. So the fact that he is now revealing himself is a demonstration of his compassion. Holiness is moved by compassion, especially for the vulnerable, especially for the oppressed. And then we also see that God's holiness allows us to access him. It's a holiness that is not kept distant, that is not hidden, that is not put in some faraway place. It is a holiness that is brought near. There is an access to this holiness that God makes available to humanity. All these things are significantly remarkable because what they teach us is that this uncommon power is revealing an uncommon God. There's no one like him. And so that's why God says, don't come any further. Take off your sandals. Do not treat this moment like it's normal. Like you can just go about like you would in any other situation. Acknowledge that this is a holy moment. You need to live differently. You encounter my presence. You encounter this uncommon power, this uncommon God, then you better live an uncommon life. And that's why these restrictions and these instructions are provided. And so therein lies a very important point for you and me. Perhaps one of the greatest tragedies that we can make, perhaps one of the greatest mistakes that we can be guilty of is when we treat God as common. Is when we do, we have completely lost sight of his holiness. And so how do we do that? What does that look like? Think about prayer. What's your prayer life look like? The moment that our prayer life becomes mundane or repetitive or non-existent, ultimately what we're saying is, I don't know that he really cares what I have to say. And I don't really know if he can do anything about what I have to say. I can maybe solve this on my own. And ultimately what we're saying is he's common. And we've lost sight of his holiness. Think about his word. Right, the moment that we, we stop reading or we question what it conveys and we begin to elevate the voices of other experts or philosophies, ideas, and it just becomes one in a long list of options for us to consider. What are we doing? We're saying this is common. There are a lot of different ways to get guidance, a lot of different ways to find truth. When we don't consult it, when we treat it casually without reverence, what are we saying? We've lost sight of his holiness. Think about how we convene together, what we call church, right? When we start thinking about all the different things that we have on our list, right, and we start evaluating what it means to commune as a community of faith and to gather together, and we're evaluating that along the list of all the other things, extracurricular activities, sports, piano, school, and all of a sudden God is scheduled we're treating him as common, as mundane. We've lost sight of his holiness. So one of the greatest tragedies is for us to go through life and, and treat him as common and to lose sight of it, right? To, to miss he really is. And all of a sudden we find ourselves living an ordinary life. 
It's one of the greatest mistakes that we could ever make. And so part of what, what we're having to be ushered into is to break free from that, right? To be awakened out of that tendency, to see him for who he is, to, to marvel once again at his holiness. And so we do this by once again reminding what it is that he's asked us to do, right? That he has given us a command to live this this uncommon life. Why? What does he say? He says it in Leviticus. He says in the New Testament, you should be holy because I am holy, right? You become an ambassador of this holiness. You live life accordingly. You look at all these Levitical laws that begin to play themselves out. Right, all these, these rituals of cleansing, all these, these instructions, all these edicts, part of what he's trying to say is that you need to be different. He's not saying you have to be formal. Right? It's not that we have to wear certain clothes and carry ourselves in a certain way. That's not what he's saying. You can be formal and you can do all these different things and still treat them as common. What it has to do is with the matter of the heart. What it has to do is with the matter of faith, with the matter of the mind. What we begin to see is that his holiness sets us apart to be who he's called us to be, to be holy as he is holy. And when you look at those laws, you look at those restrictions, that is the theme that ties them together, holiness. And so finally, God reveals himself fully in Jesus Christ, and Jesus kind of gives us a definition, a very simplistic definition of what this uncommon life, this holy life means to look like. He says, listen, it can all be summed up in two simple commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the uncommon life. That's what doesn't make sense. That's what reveals who he is when we actually love our enemies. When we love God in the midst of injustice, in the midst of persecution, when we, when we unwaver in those moments, that's the uncommon life that we are called to live. And it points us back to this Messiah. That's the message that changes everything, right? This Messiah that is brought here to reveal that holiness actually invades the common. It invades this world. It comes to cleanse. It comes to redeem. This Messiah actually comes to usher us into the holy of holies through the sacrifice of his blood and his gift on the cross. This is the promise that this Messiah is going to lead us into becoming this holy nation that will one day ultimately fall around his throne and declare with every other tongue, tribe, and nation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's an uncommon power revealing an uncommon God, leading us to live an uncommon life. And so that's got to be our response. And so here's how I want to close. I'm going to read for us, I'm going to paraphrase for us, is maybe a better way to say it, the way that this call is reiterated in the book of 1 Peter, through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to do is just hear these words as if God himself is speaking to you. So I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to be reminded of how his holiness should speak to you. I want us to be reminded that we are a chosen people. Chosen. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. We are his special possession. So we gather together to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Therefore, with minds that are alert, we should set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, we should no longer conform to the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance, but rather we should be holy because God is holy. We should live out our lives as strangers living with reverent fear because we know that it was not with silver or gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. This Christ who was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for our sake. Through him we believe in God who has raised him from the dead. And as a result, we now carry a sincere love for each other. We are called to love one another deeply from the heart. May this be an uncommon power that points us to an uncommon God, that we would live an uncommon life. Father in heaven, we thank you for your power. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. God, forgive us for the times in our lives where we lose sight of your holiness, when we lose sight of who you are and we treat you as common, we treat you as ordinary. Father, awaken our hearts to marvel at the holiness that you carry. God, that we would enter into a relationship with you to assure that your presence is forever in our lives, that we also would be ambassadors to go and to love others deeply and with compassion and point others to this incredible truth, that the God who saves, the God who redeems, is holy, and he has called us to share in that sacred, incredible gift of holiness. To you be the glory both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.